Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Pediatric Consult. I'm Dr. Jill Schaffeld and I'll be your host for today. I'm very excited to talk to today's guests, Dr. Lori Lukeman-Jones and Dr. Omar Niss, both from the hematology, hematology division here at Cincinnati Children's. Today's discussion is a consult on iron deficiency anemia and management of iron deficiency anemia in the primary care setting. So let's start and learn a little bit about our guests. Um, so we'll start with Dr. Lukeman Jones. Can you just give us a little bit of a background of how long you've been practicing, maybe how long you've been at Cincinnati Children's, and if there's any special interests you might have? Sure. Well, I've been practicing for more than 25 years as a pediatric hematologist, oncologist, more recently in hematology. But I trained in Southern California, and during my residency, I worked in a in a neighborhood health center just this side of the Mexican border. Um, and so I have a real passion for taking care of people with limited resources and interest in food. That's food is one of my passions actually. <laughs> um, and getting good healthy food to people and being creative in um, using resources. That's wonderful. You know, I'm thinking ahead as we continue to talk about this, and there will be definitely some good opportunities to talk about food and kind of how it plays into our talk today. So that's perfect. So Dr. Ness, welcome. And if you could also share a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thank you. Uh, my name is Omar Ness. I'm a pediatric hematologist at Cincinnati Children's. I um, actually did my training, my fellowship training in Hemonc at, um, at Children's and stayed on. So I've been practicing post-fellowship for this is my eighth year in hematology. Um, I have interest in uh, red cell disorders and anemias and um, autoimmune cytopenias and uh, that, that kind of uh, thing. So um, yes, just like with uh, Dr. Lockman-Jones' experience, I also see a lot of patients with um, different anemias, but certainly iron deficiency anemia is uh, the most common type of anemia. It's kind of neat listening to both of you talk. I'm thinking we've got kind of two different spectrums that we can talk about of different things that play into anemia. So um, it'll be great to, to get started. So um, we'll just go ahead and um, jump in. Our conversation today, as I mentioned, is specifically on iron deficiency anemia. Um, and I'll let whoever would like to take this question um, to kind of take off, um, just to share a quick overview of the condition and maybe just a little bit if there's some data that you can think of, just rough data on incidents in terms of how many children are affected by this. Um, and then maybe how often you see this um, being referred to you, but also if, if you have any information on how often um, this is seen like in the primary care setting. So why don't I start by defining anemia, and I'll let um, my partner talk about iron deficiency. So anemia is really a definition of falling outside of the normal range. So you take 100 healthy people, you draw their blood, you assume they're matched by age or race, ethnicity, gender, whatever, um, and you take 95% of those. And so if you fall lower than the lower limit of normal, for hemoglobin or hematocrit, depending on what you're measuring, that's anemia. But a subset of that, the most common cause of anemia in children and in the United States in general is iron deficiency anemia. Not everyone who has 
iron deficiency has anemia, so that's the extreme end, but I'm going to let you talk about that, Dr. Yeah, Ness. for sure. Um, yes, iron deficiency anemia is the most common type of anemia worldwide, actually, and in, in developing countries, it's even more common than um, in the U.S. and in high-resource countries. But even in, in the U.S., it's still um, very common. It's uh, depending on how you define anemia, on the group that you measure it in. But in general, in children, I think it's estimated to be around um, 4 or 5 percent, um, prevalence of 4 to 5 percent. And it's about a little less than half of all the cases of anemia in the first three years of life. Wow. So it's a fairly common um, disorder. Sure. I think I had read uh, 2.4 million children worldwide. Yeah. Which is, is you know yeah. pretty impactful. That makes um, makes this even more important that we're talking about this. Um, and then most risk populations. Do you have a a good guide to kind of give us what maybe age group um, as well as I know you mentioned gender and ethnicity. So maybe just delving into that a little bit. Um, what age groups would be most at risk or yeah sure. gender and populations. Um, so. Um, infants or actually fetuses build their iron stores during the uh, third trimester. 90% of your iron store um, is built up during the third trimester of pregnancy. And so um, the more premature the baby is, the um, higher the risk for iron deficiency. So premature babies are um, one risk factor. Um, Then um, iron is needed for... um, development and um, growth, and so periods of expanded growth and growth spurt are certainly high-risk periods. So um, infancy and childhood is a big um, risk factor, um, age risk factor, um, that diet plays part into it. And so um, babies who are exclusively breastfed do not get enough um, iron if they are um, breastfed beyond four to six months of life. That is when you run out of the iron stores that you were born with, and um, breastfeeding provides barely enough to maintain the first six months of life. So that's another um, risk group. And then um, later in life, during another growth um, uh, another growth phase, um, during your teen years, that's another period where um, iron deficiency is more prevalent also in teenagers. Real quick follow-up, and then Dr. Lickman-Jones, if, if you, you can um, hang tight for one second, I apologize. But, you know, I was thinking with breastfed, exclusively breastfed infants, and I know, you know, we're going to go into a little bit more mm-hmm. about management, but I don't want to forget to ask, you know, do you feel we're, I feel like as general pediatricians, we are so good about driving home vitamin D for every breastfed infant. Um, you know, is is it something that you would routinely recommend an exclusively breastfed infant after six months to, you know, switch that from just exclusive vitamin D to polyvisal with iron, you know, and some sort of iron supplementation? Yeah. Iron requirement jump really significantly um, after the first six months of life. It's a gradual increase, but... Uh, just to give a sense, your iron requirement in the first six months of life is about 0.27 milligram uh, per day. For the next six months of life, from 6 to 12, it goes up to 11 milligram per day. So you can see it's about 30 times. Wow. Again, it's not an overnight jump, but it's a, uh, it's a gradual increase. 
Um, and yes, so uh, the AAP recommendation um, is to supplement with iron if you're exclusively breastfed beyond four months of life, actually. So if you're getting 50 percent of your diet or more um, from breastfeeding beyond four months of um, of age you should be getting one milligram per kilo of iron until um, you're getting enough iron um, a rich a diet basically so that's that's uh, an important recommendation and i think uh, i would certainly recommend it sure and i know bioavailability is slightly better in breast milk than cow's milk but right. when we think about formula fed babies we just, everything's already fortified right. with iron, which makes the difference. Yes, formula provides um, enough um, enough iron for the infancy for the first year. So if you're, um, unless you have another risk factor or a problem, usually uh, formula-fed babies who are full-term don't need additional supplement. Perfect. So and that's where the that. 25 years plus experience comes in. I will say that in early in my medical career, um, in the United States, they were still using low, what is called low iron formulas, and iron deficiency anemia in general, ha the incidence has decreased with the adoption of higher iron formulas. But that's, you know, true in the United States. So a caution, if, if a family moves back and forth between countries, they might be using an alternative, or certainly if they're not using um, a commercial a, you know, formula, you might want to check how much iron is actually in that. Absolutely. And I think that's a really good point. I can think even in the past six months or so, just in practice, I'll have families come in, oh, we're using this formula. And I'm thinking, I've never heard of this. And they're ordering it online from Germany or online. Mm. So I really have had to be careful and look and yeah. compare to what is in our, you know, iron fortified formulas here and make sure that they're equivalent. So thank you. It kind of, oh, yes, I've, I've definitely encountered this. So Yeah, so, so one thing that may help is to think about, as you were saying, um, Dr. Niss, that the, so much of your iron stores happen in that third trimester. And so when babies are born, the amount of iron that they have is proportionate to body mass. So not just premature infants, but small for gestational mm -hmm. age infants will have lower total iron stores. So that generic rec recommendation for starting iron-rich foods and or iron supplements for, you know, at about four months of age or somewhere between four to six months of age for the iron-rich foods um, is for the average baby, but not the one who has blood loss either they actually have bleeding somewhere or they're just getting a lot of sampling because they were in ill infants or hospitalized or they had jaundice, a pro protracted course of jaundice and had a lot of sampling. So there are lots of ways that, or things like twin to trin or maternal fetal uh, hemorrhages, those kinds of things can um, reduce iron stores. So there's lots of ways babies can be behind the average in terms of iron store. And then, as you were saying, the, the high-risk age periods, you can think of times when growth accelerates. So during that first year of life, what people triple their, their body weight over the first year of life, they've got to make more red cell mass to, to circulate. They've got to make more muscle and important enzymes as well. And then again, in adolescence, there's a tremendous growth spurt. Males actually grow more and have more 
muscle mass. So iron deficiency, we don't think of that as common in males, but it can happen. And then females, of course, not only do they grow, but they are menstruating, so they're having a source of blood loss every month. Um, in addition to that, some of our, our adolescents are becoming elite athletes, and they're tearing down and making new muscle at an accelerated rate. They also may have March hematuria. They may actually be peeing a little bit of blood and, and losing some just because of sure. how much stress they're experiencing. And they often can't keep up with that through normal dietary um, means. And a lot of elite athletes should be, especially in adolescents, should be taking iron supplements every day. Then, if they're following a trend and their conscience to be vegetarian, that gets even more challenging because um, meat is an important source of iron. And on top of that, if they're eating a lot of vegetables, um, they may not absorb iron as well. So there can really be some challenges in those ages that you mentioned. Absolutely. Thank you. Those were all all great ages and thinking of, you know, as we do even just our well child checks in the offices, you know, screening and not just screening, but, um, you know, different things in the history we may not think about. Like you said, if they're, we love when they're really active, right? But also saying, hey, that elite athlete that has had a huge growth spurt, that should be in the back of our mind. You know, is this somebody we do need to screen for anemia um, or for potential iron deficiency? And just taking a very good dietary history, how important that is as well. So in my office, I'm thinking, you know, we do a routine just finger prick hemoglobin at age one and age two. Um, we do it again at 17. Um, I'm thinking as we're sharing so much about preemie babies, because I do feel like we see so many preemies or small for gestational age. You know, are those infants maybe ones that you would recommend a screening at a different time? You know, maybe we're seeing them if if they were an X 30 weeker and, you know, maybe I'm seeing them for the first time age adjusted at 35, 36 weeks because they've been in the NICU for a month or so and they're coming into my office and, you know, most of the time, I think the NICU does a good job. They're often, you know, on an iron supplement when they come to see me. But, you know, is that something that if they're on that supplement, I should be following a little more closely prior to that one-year visit? Probably. I think it's it's going to vary between um, between patients because depending on the risk factors, like uh, Lori was explaining, your how premature you are, what other risk factors you had in the in the in the NICU, how much blood did if some children, if say they received erythropoietin for premature for anemia of prematurity, those will even have higher iron needs because you need iron for EPO to work, and so these kids may need really high uh, higher doses and may develop iron deficiency um, earlier, and so I think it it will have to be individualized, but I certainly for these high-risk group uh, would consider screening um, sooner than 12 months, somewhere between the six to nine-month period after you're, um, st you're run out of your stores and you're at high risk for, um, for iron deficiency is probably a good time to screen. So more on a case-by-case -case basis by yeah. looking at that history and how right. involved and the how, NICU course was, mm -hmm. jaundice, phototherapy, you know, all those those things may play into that decision. How much iron were you taking? Were they really taking iron? Because, you know, it's not uh, 
it's not easy to take. Um, sometimes some children Absolutely. may not tolerate it or something. So yeah, I think it's case by case, but certainly in a, in a high risk group like uh, preemies, um, early screening may be needed. So moving on to, to seeing a patient uh, in, in the pediatric office, um, you know, maybe it's a well child check um, that we talked, like I said, about dietary history being important. Any little clinical pearls for physical exam findings or maybe um, things, specific things in the dietary history or behavior concerns? Things like that that may lead us as a pediatrician to say, you know, this is someone I want to screen or I may need to get labs on. Yeah, so I think it's interesting that the information we get is often in how we ask the question. And so I think open-ended questions tell me about your child. What kind of an eater are they? Um, to try and elicit the information that they're very choosy and they have a very restricted diet or they, you know, will pretty much eat everything that's put in front of them. So the longer I'm in practice and the more kids with severe iron deficiency anemia that I meet, the more I'm impressed that an important piece of history is whether they have a very restricted eating pattern. And this can be because their autism spectrum, they don't like their foods touching or they have some oral aversion and they just don't tolerate any texture at all. So some of these kids are on what I call the white diet where they eat mashed potatoes and tater tots or french fries mm -hmm. and, and really and maybe the parents sneak in a little shaved ham or turkey into the mashed potatoes um, and milk and that's, that's what they'll eat. Um, so that's, that's really helpful and I think, and speaking of milk, I think a lot of families have the impression that milk is wonderful um, that's on television, right? So when we ask how much milk a child is drinking a day, I think families often think that we want them to be pushing that. If three bottles is good, five bottles is probably better. Um, and, and really, we should be communicating that two to three servings of dairy a day is excellent and adequate. And I think in that same sense, it's very important to relay to families, like you mentioned, that I mean, I think parents understand picky eating is not healthy. I think most parents understand that their child should be eating fruits and eating vegetables and, you know, things we talk about. But I'm not sure how many understand that it can become a true medical problem in a fairly short amount of time. I mean, you know, the, the picky eating can truly lead to a very severe iron deficiency. Um, I feel like there's this general, yes, we need these, but the understanding of why we need these things. And then also, as you mentioned, limiting that milk intake. So specifically, what ounces per day, if we look at, say, 12 months and up for cow's milk, what would be your recommendation for ounces per day that we should, and then maybe even beyond that, between one and two years, and maybe that changes two years plus? I mean, generally, the recommendation for beyond 12 months is not to exceed 20 to 24 ounces of milk per day for kids who are not there just for a, a normal diet. Uh, a lot of times when, see, when we see severely iron-deficient children, we even cut that down even further um, for two reasons, because um, too much milk impairs iron absorption and also because a lot of these children are really 
their diet consists of primarily milk, and it becomes really hard to reduce the amount. Uh, it's, it's sometimes um, easier to just cut it off the diet or reduce it for a month or two until you um, um, restore the f- fixed iron deficiency anemia, then you can um, let them drink the recommended 20 to 24 ounces um, per day. And then, of course, there are some kids who get a proctocolitis or a protein-losing enteropathy. They're more at risk the more milk they're drinking, but some kids are extraordinarily sensitive. It doesn't mean they'll be sensitive their whole life, but there is something about infancy when those guts are just really sensitive to the casein protein in milk. And the amount of milk they drink. So when they drink these excessive amounts, a lot of them have actually microscopic blood loss just Mm -hmm. um, from milk drink. So milk is poor in iron, is impairing iron absorption, it's filling kids so they're not eating, and also it's causing blood loss. So it is a big problem and a huge risk factor for um, toddlers between one and three to four years of age. Absolutely. And I do realize that, you know, for true physical exam findings, I feel like we'd have to be pretty severely anemic to see, you know, tachycardia, true pallor. Um, but I was actually reviewing our Cincinnati Children's Community Support Tool that was um, developed, I believe, last September. And one of the things that I hadn't thought about um, was just behaviors in general, excessive irritability being a sign of anemia, just other things in the history, which is probably hard to decide whether right. is that true toddler behavior, the irritability versus, but just having that, you know, as another symptom in mm-hmm. line with the dietary intake and everything else that we're discussing. But you're right. It's usually um, a slow process and it's, a lot of them are not really symptomatic. Not you, They don't have the typical anemia symptoms that we think of. They're not tired. They're not sleepy. They're all over the place. They're jumping. In fact, they have the behavioral <laughs> issues that you mentioned and they you don't notice that they're anemic. Um, another, I think, symptom that uh, we should um, think about when um, when we screen these children is pica. A lot of uh, this is commonly associated symptom of iron deficiency anemia. And um, yeah, a lot of time when you see these children, you'll find that when you ask about it, you'll find that yes, they they do eat dirt and paint <laughs> chips and ice chips, and lots of things that they're not supposed to eat. And how about poor sleep? Is that something, do you see poor sleep often with anemia? I feel like it is one of the most common things we get asked about in the pediatric office. They don't sleep. They're a terrible sleeper. Um, And I do feel like, you know, most of the time that's behavioral. But is there any data that suggests that anemia can affect sleep cycles or sleep or... Yeah, I mean, actually, especially in in older kids, there is... is, um, literature um, connecting sleep um, disorders to iron deficiency, particularly restless restless leg syndrome and sleep restlessness. And this can, um, especially in children, is they may not have clear symptoms and it it could just be um, impacting their sleep quality. So yeah, that association is is clear and um, even for that's a whole different topic, but um, okay. non non iron deficient children who have restless leg syndrome may benefit from 
um, higher iron because they have issues localizing iron to the CNS. Sure. Um, so, yeah, the association is, is there, and it's clear, and it could be a symptom of iron deficiency. Wasn't something I initially thought of, but then as we were talking, I thought, gosh, we get a lot of sleep questions as well, and I'm yeah. appreciate and that. It's, it's a little counterintuitive, but in addition to things like lower socioeconomic status, obesity is actually mm -hmm. associated with iron deficiency, and along wow. with that, you can have obstructive sleep apnea, um, so they can be tired and irritable for many reasons. So that kind of cascade of events that happens there. So... If we suspect, um, as we're seeing a patient, um, just by history or maybe dietary intake, and maybe they fall outside of what we consider our normal ages for office screening of, say, hemoglobin or hematocrit, um, you know, yes, a, a quick in-office test to confirm, um, but what labs, you know, what, what is recommended in terms of further workup? You know, if I do a hemoglobin on a little one and, you know, maybe hemoglobin comes back and it's 6.5, you know, and, okay, we need to grab some blood work. But what specific tests um, would you recommend the general pediatrician's order to yeah. work this up further? Well, I, I'd start by saying there isn't a single test to diagnose iron deficiency. Unfortunately, you have to look at different tests and um, they all have their downsides and imperfections. But in general, I think the, the in-office in, in screening is obviously a great tool to screen, but remember it's a screening tool, so you really have to get confirmatory testing because anemia doesn't always mean um, iron deficiency. And so um, I believe that even AAP recommends that if you have a low hemoglobin in office, even if it's mild, you should confirm it with, uh, with uh, CBC and, and RBC and DCS. So how to diagnose? I think definitely a CBC is a first step where you look um, at hemoglobin and the red cell indices, your MCV, MCH, and MCHC. A classic iron deficiency anemia um, is a microcytic hypochromic anemia, so the MCV and the MCHC would be low. But that's that's not always the case. Um, you may have, um, in, especially in early iron deficiency anemia, the microcytosis and hypochromia may not be, uh, may not be evident yet. Um, it's also recommended that um, you um, check a, um, a test for um, iron availability and iron stores. So ferritin is a, is a good marker of iron stores, but it's also um, an acute phase reactant. So it goes up in inflammation, acute illness, all that can give you um, a falsely normal or reassuring ferritin. And so um, many people check ferritin with a CRP with inflammatory markers, um, although if you have low ferritin, that's actually pretty specific for iron deficiency anemia. The problem is if you suspect iron deficiency and ferritin is normal or high, that does not rule it out because it's an acute phase reactant. Sure. You could also look at um, iron availability through <clears throat> serum iron and TIBC and the ratio between them, and that's called iron saturation or transference saturation. Um, a low ratio, which is usually caused by low serum iron and high TIBC, are also indicative of iron deficiency anemia, but they're also affected by um, by any inflammation in the body, and um, they are not reflective of your long-term iron stores. They are more about the iron availability at, in the short term. Um, so they are com they have complementary value, but um, again, none 
of the tests are specific. So looking at the combination of ferritin, iron saturation, hemoglobin, and MCV can give you a good idea about um, iron status and iron deficiency anemia in most cases. Perfect. Thank you. I feel, I feel like it is confusing. I, I've never asked you about this, Omar, but um, I feel there's no shame in a therapeutic trial of iron for, sure. for <laughs> yeah. you know, a month. But I don't wait an, a month to reassess the child because a lot of times people don't start the iron. The child doesn't tolerate it, whatever. So you find out a month later that your intention never happened. So I definitely would reassess sooner. And depending on how severe the anemia is, I might see them in a week or two weeks, but you know, it's 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 very unusual that you could car, cause harm with a month or two yeah. of a therapeutic trial of iron. Right, and then do you have specific recommendations, and this is for whoever would like to take this question, um, what type of iron supplementation specifically, and then how to dose that um, daily dosing, lots of um, literature even recommending sometimes alternate day dosing for absorption. So any um, specific guidance you can give us as general pediatricians for um, maybe even specific forms of iron? Um, we mentioned, and you already mentioned, that it's not always tolerated well, which can be very difficult to um, deal with. And Dr. Ludman-Jones, you just mentioned that as well, that, you know, sometimes they stop the iron because it's not well tolerated. So there's a lot of considerations. One is cost. So generally, if insurance does cover, oftentimes they will only cover ferrous sulfate. So a lot of the public insurers will only cover that, and it takes fairly extraordinary measures to convince them through <laughs> <laughs> appeals processes that any alternative will be helpful. So I think of finance, I think it's reasonable in many people to start with ferrous sulfate. You can equip people with some success tool, with some tools for success up front, uh, maybe talking to them about the fact that it does have a metallic taste. So you might, might want to give it in the dropper form to a toddler and chase it with orange juice, or even talk about uh, orange juice concentrate, mixing it with that oh, so wow. that it masks that taste. I don't think mashed banana or applesauce <laughs> really um, cover it. Um, and then I think some people of all ages are quite concerned about constipation. Um, what do you do about that, Dr. Ness? Yeah, no, certainly um, the ferrous sulfate it's actually very effective, despite all these issues. If if they take it, it's it's very effective. And uh, yeah, constipation is is a side effect that's seen with it. And uh, a lot of times, we recommend that um, they take um, uh, Marilax if if they become constipated. But a lot of people actually tolerate it really well. I'm you probably if you've seen for a sulfate, it smells. It has a strong smell <laughs> and some a strong flavor. And but despite that, actually a lot of children take it, and if they do, it works really well. And so I I think it's a, it's a good first recommendation because thinking about the iron supplement, the oral supplements, um, there are a lot of them. But generally speaking, we think of them as the salts, the iron salts, the ferrous sulfate and fumarate and gluconate, the ferrous form. And there is the newer iron polysaccharide where iron is in the ferric form, Fe plus three. And it's um, that one is more palatable, more 
tolerable. It doesn't have as um, as strong of a smell and flavor as ferrous sulfate, but um, in um, in clinical trials where they compared them head to head, the response to polysaccharide is actually slower than ferrous sulfate, and wow. so it is more um, they compared equal doses. So maybe you need higher doses with polysaccharide, but that we we don't know that for sure. So I think still the recommendation is to use the same dosing strategy, which is uh, three to six milligram per kilo per day. That's of the elemental iron in in the. In, uh, in the type of iron that you're using. And usually we still recommend starting with ferrous sulfate. Give it a trial. You don't have to wait months to decide whether your child is able to take it. I think we, we like to do a close follow-up to make sure that they are able to take it and they're responding to it. But if, if they do, that's, it's actually a good medication to start with. And if not, then we can try to prescribe the polysaccharide. Sure. And I love the idea of the orange juice concentrate. Yeah. Don't, can't you tell don't you how many times I have a conversation, whether it be with antibiotics or another medicine like yeah. ferrosulfate mm-hmm. with parents, and I just can't get them to take it. Right, especially with yeah. the uh, with the vitamin C. Vitamin C enhances iron absorption, so um, uh, orange juice would would be a good idea for both to improve palatability and also enhance absorption. Definitely not chocolate milk. No, <laughs> nobody no should milk. take. And nobody should take iron on an empty stomach. Oh yes. You know it feels terrible. So that's important to address. Mm-hmm. And I think especially with adolescents, I, the first question I ask is, do you eat breakfast? Uh-huh. Because most, if they don't eat breakfast, there's no point in trying to give iron in the mornings. Absolutely. Um, it's also important to address that, that tea will reduce absorption and uh, really high fiber will reduce absorption and milk will reduce absorption. So some families will mix the iron in the milk in an attempt Mm -hmm. to get it down and then you know a month later you're scratching your head because they swear they were (laughs) adherent but then when you ask details about how it was given you get a lot of information sure and uh, and one thing to add about the absorption is actually um, the stomach ph affects absorption so kids who are on chronic bpi or h2 blockers may have a slow or decreased absorption of iron too that's a great point. Not one I'm very familiar with in general pediatrics, so that's good. Um, it, can you sh- can you share any light into? I have recently read a bit about um, alternate day or every other day dosing, um, specifically with plasma hepcidin levels. Um, in terms of, does that make more sense? And what age group, if it matters, does this make more sense for? Yeah, so um, actually in the last, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years, there has been um, g- greater understanding of iron absorption. And certainly hepcidin is a is a, is a, the main regulator of iron absorption. So this is, um, you can think of it if, if you have... Um, too much hepcidin, you have less. So hepcidin is the regulator of iron absorption from the stomach and um, the iron mobilization from the, the stores to the, to the bloodstream. So hepcidin blocks iron absorption. Um, and so if you have too much hepcidin, you have less, um, less iron absorption through the stomach. Uh, in if you have severe iron deficiency, your hepcidin would be low to allow your body to absorb more iron. And so it, the idea of every other dosing comes from the, um, the theory that if you take 
iron too frequently, then the body will upregulate hepcidin in order to slow the iron absorption. And so it may be counterintuitive to give too much iron because you're not going to be absorbing that iron as much. And so they've tried to space out the iron to um, no more than once a day and in even in more recent trial to every other day to see if you allow the body to absorb more iron. And it seems to be, um, it has some effect in certain groups, at least it's been studied in um, adolescents with um, and older um, patients with mild iron deficiency. And it seems to be equally effective in some studies to every other day and more tolerable. So I think it's it's something to be, um, it's, it's I think it's too early because there are some newer studies showing that if you still take it once a day, maybe you get a, a faster response in the first month, but then things slow down after that. Um, I think it's a, it's a reasonable strategy for um, adolescents with uh, mild anemia, especially the ones who are intolerant to iron. That's so what that, I was thinking as a, you were saying, it might be a great yeah. sell for parents who you know, really are having a difficult time because of the side effects with For their sure. children. So. I don't think we still, we, I don't know, Lori, but we still don't, that, but that's not been studied in children and, and toddlers, and I, uh, we still use at least daily dosing in, in toddlers and children. And okay. behaviorally, it's just tough at any age to, to take a medicine every other day. Yeah. We all lose track of the days. So Which I guess day do we take it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, if you were one of those people with a pill pack and you doled out the pills in advance and you took everything on time, then every other day would be reasonable. But Absolutely. most of us, our lives don't work that way. <laughs> that makes sense. But definitely a good option, you know, if, if a parent comes in and tells you, gosh, we just can't do this. Well, yeah. Maybe, especially in those older patients, we could try every other day dosing. As a general pediatrician um, treating iron deficiency anemia, is there a set specific time that you would say, when does this patient need to be referred to a specialist or to a hematologist? So iron deficiency anemia is so common, it really is part of general practice, just like asthma management. I think the key is picking up on it and addressing it before it's so severe that the child has to be hospitalized and impending heart failure from severe anemia. So addressing it early and frequent follow-up, there's no substitute for bringing them, the family back to say, how is it going? and getting frequent labs. I would say if a child has moderate anemia, that should be at least weekly assessments. Um, what would you define as moderate? Pardon? What would you define as so moderate? So I would say if, if their hemoglobin is a third lower than it should be for age, then I would consider that fairly urgent. I mean, okay. why do we care about iron deficiency anemia? So in addition to energy and sleep, it's important for neurocognition. Um, we're not clear that those gains can ever be taken back or those losses can ever be taken back again. So if you're, if you're giving the iron, the family says they're taking it and the hemoglobin isn't budging, or if the laboratory data isn't adding up, um, that's the time to ask for help. And not every patient has to be physically referred. We have options of reaching out by physician's priority link, or we do online through EPIC, the electronic medical record. We do online consults. We're, we're happy to help. Perfect. Thank you. Well, I'm going to 
delve into just a few very quick case studies that um, we haven't done this before in pediatric consults, so this is kind of new, but I think it um, is some very good info in terms of what we would see um, in the general pediatrician office. So the first one I'm going to start with is a toddler, or let's say, you know, 18 to 24 months old in that range, who comes into the office, seems to be a little bit more irritable dietary-wise. Parents label them as more of a picky eater, um, now to the point where they really just want to drink a lot of milk, um, still doing bottles of milk. Um, and then family has caught her, you know, eating kitty litter, eating, you know, anything that, that you know, of course, we wouldn't want to put in our mouths. <laughs> so um, at the pediatrician's office, her hemoglobin is 3.5. Um, and maybe if one of you could just kind of discuss a little bit of the physiology of what's going on there and, and how to treat that. Yeah, so it sounds like this is uh, uh, a toddler who um, has a very selective diet, particularly um, excessive milk intake. So... I'm sorry, did you mention how much they drink or do we have I didn't estimate? say specific okay. ounces, yeah. just just more that they only want to drink yeah. milk. But I, I think you're yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And Dr. Lickman Jones mentioned the you know, parents can't get them, but they think milk is the right. you know, milk is the important thing to give when often it's not. So Yeah. So and and because this is usually a very slow process, like yeah, you a lot of these children present with such low hemoglobin, usually three or even lower, and they have very little symptoms. Sometimes they're just noticed when someone comes and visits them, and they notice that they're very pale. And um, some of these children may have hypoproteinemia, and they may actually be edematous at the same time. Um, and so this is obviously a severe form of of anemia. We suspected to be iron deficiency anemia. So the first step would be to obtain a full CBC and, and an um, iron panel, ferritin, and an iron saturation to confirm that. And um, decide based on their symptoms and hemodynamic um, stability whether um, they actually um, do need a blood transfusion or iron therapy is, is adequate. Um, if, if in children who are hemodynamically stable, technically you can actually treat them with oral iron or IV iron and they would respond very quickly. Um, in, a in a child with a hemoglobin of three, um, and if you're not sure about their background and the situation that led to this, um, they may need a small transfusion to get them to a safe level and then continue with oral iron or IV iron after that, depending on the setting. And sometimes uh, these kids really do have um, eating issues and speech therapy will do evaluations will do feeding and eating evaluations and it's a beautiful educational experience for families as well as the diagnostic aspect and there is a feeding clinic at cincinnati children's a multidisciplinary clinic with dietitians and psychologists as well as physicians and you know speech therapists so there are options for families out there. I can't imagine how the general pediatrician can assess everything everyone expects them to assess. So just know that there are options out there and there's help. Absolutely. Thank you for mentioning that as well. Um, I think we're all aware as general pediatricians that, you know, sometimes sensory issues, behavioral concerns that they may need 
occupational therapy or feeding difficulties can sometimes go to speech therapy. But I'm not sure that we always link that to anemia. And I think that's an important thing to say, you know what, this anemia may actually be helped by not just giving iron, but really addressing those behavioral aspects as well. So that's perfect. Thank you. Well, I'm going to move into um, another scenario. So we'll say a 9 to 10 month old um, ex-preemie, um, 28 to 30 weeks in that range, um, is seen in the office and at the visit has a hemoglobin of 6 and a, a hematocrit of 18. Um, and just a little background on the preemie. Um, the preemie did spend the first month or so in the hospital because of jaundice, required some phototherapy, um, extended phototherapy for a week or so, and then has continued to um, have some feeding problems with solids, but also worked on feeding in the hospital. Um, it's a breastfed infant, um, and mom notes that introducing solids into the diet has been a little bit difficult, specifically with cereals. Um, and currently not taking any medications or vitamins. So there's some real practice variability in terms of discharge and premature infants and starting iron. I believe the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends supplementation from two weeks onward for the more premature infants, but that isn't always happening. And even if it is prescribed, it may fall off everybody's radar. So I think that's a port an important part of reassessments at follow-up visits. Sometimes these more at-risk infants, these treasured survivors, uh, families treat them a little differently and they may give them more milk in bottles. They may be slow to transition to sippy cup. They may going to be going to bed with a bottle for comfort. These are red flags for iron deficiency anemia. All right. Well, um, I think those were some wonderful just patient scenarios to discuss a lot of the different topics that we covered today. Um, and I think we've got a, a really good understanding of how to treat iron deficiency in the office. And then just a, a good background and knowledge of as general pediatricians now in speaking to both of you and with all your expertise on you know, when, when to follow up, how to work it up. So I really appreciate you joining us today. I appreciate you sharing all your knowledge and um, look forward to hopefully um, communicating with you more via e-consult um, to remind everyone who's joining us to look at the community practice support tools because that has some great information that we covered here today as well. Um, and then just a little reminder that there will be CME um, attached to the podcast link um, that will go over some of the things that we discussed today as well. So thank you both for joining us. Thank sure, you. You're welcome.